This story starts out in a classroom. I'm sitting at a desk in a building on the campus of George Mason University, some 20 miles from the White House. It's the first time I've been back to a college campus since I graduated. The classroom was never my favorite place to pass time. However, for today's episode, I'm willing to make an exception. That's because I'm here to see a man who accomplishes the seemingly impossible. He builds peace in times of war. And today we're going to hear the story of how, and more importantly, why. I'm Sean Fallen. Welcome to Pushing the Perimeter. Okay, good afternoon everyone. And um, welcome to our session this afternoon. The man I'm here to see is Alf Huertes. He's an associate professor at George Mason University. He's also a practitioner in the field of conflict transformation. However, this episode isn't about conflict transformation. It's about Al and the path that has led him here today. I'm Al Fortes, of course, from the Philippines. I'm a full-time faculty. I'm an associate professor at George Mason University. So in addition to being a full-time faculty, I'm also a practitioner, a field practitioner for 25, 26 years in the field of conflict resolution and transformation peace-building, and psychosocial trauma healing. Al grew up in the Philippines in the 70s and 80s. It was a contentious time. Every week, demonstrations would erupt as thousands of students across the country demanded education reform and protested the rising crime rate. At the same time, there was a significant communist movement taking up arms against the Filipino government. Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law and ruled the country in that way for three years. During those martial years, I still remember very well several of my friends, particularly church workers from the Protestant or Roman Catholic groups who were literally being silenced. When you say silenced, being killed. I remember people who were out there in the field, I mean in the, in the community, for example, in the streets, and those leaders, they were literally being kind of blacklisted. And so it became very difficult for people to go against the government. It was not just protesting against Marcos that fueled the conflict in the Philippines. There was also a deeper struggle for national identity. From the mid-16th century through World War II, the Philippines had been under the control of another power. First Spain, then the United States, and for a time, even Japan. Despite gaining independence from the U.S. in 1946, many influences still remained. I still remember vividly many of these so-called missionaries coming from the West, going to the Philippines, and they would always teach us everything about faith, about God. This is how you should believe in God. This is how you should worship God as if they, they have all the answers. I still remember, I think I was in third, third year high school. I said to myself, why don't you come and live with us? Why don't you come and discover where God has already been actively present in our lives. Growing up was a confusing time for Al. 
With the government-sponsored oppression and search for national identity, it left him in a void. I think there was a part of me, the subconscious part of me, that wanted to be affirmed, wanted to be validated. I think there was a part of me that needed to be heard of, which to me at that time really mattered. Al finishes high school and begins studying theology in the United States at Eastern Mennonite University, just south of Harrisonburg, Virginia. There he is introduced to the discipline of peace studies and nonviolence. Upon completing his program, he returns to the Philippines, this time as a minister. His first assignment is in a conflict zone in a small town named Santo Nino in the southern region of the island chain in an area called Surigao del Sur. The conflict was between the government military, the Philippine army, and also the New People's Army, the guerrilla movement, the armed wing of the Communist Party of the Philippines. I witnessed firsthand military helicopters dropping bombs at villages perceived to be sympathizers to the New People's Army, the guerrilla movement. I remember really crawling many times just to save my dear life so I won't be hit by the flying bullets. I remember witnessing military atrocities. It's a custom in the Philippines that whenever someone celebrates his or her birthday, the rest would do an early morning, as early as four o'clock in the morning, kind of birthday serenade, where we'll be singing birthday songs. And then I remember whenever we do birthday uh, morning serenades with the young people from the church that I work with, the you know, military would just right away put the barrel of M16. I said, here you are again, where are you going? And I said, I don't think I'm ready. I don't think I can do it. I can, you know, I just returned from the United States. Please, can you assign me somewhere else? I just don't want to be assigned in a war zone, you know, but that was my assignment. And so I, 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 I told the, the committee, okay, I'm going to accept that, you know, work, pastoral work, but only for a year. As time passes, Al notices a change in his role. During that first year of working in a church setting, I also saw my role being an educator and a mobilizer. Many of them didn't have a college degree, not even high school degree. And so they became an easy target for the military atrocities because they basically didn't have any clue as far as the rights as citizens of the Republic of the Philippines were concerned. And so during the first year, I also integrated into our Sunday school, Sunday school classes, the, the Philippine constitution and bylaws. I always told the church members that you are not just quote unquote children of God, you're also citizens of the Republic of the Philippines. Because I, I learned that when a community becomes educated and when they are able to know their rights, and what is happening around them. The next step is they start to question things. And that was something that threatened the powers that be. For them, it was a big shock as well, that all of a sudden, these people whom they just kind of oppressed for quite some time now, all of a sudden they start to say, we would like to have some conversation and dialogue with this. And then they started asking the question, who is leading these people? Who is educating them? And then during that time, it happened to be me. I even received a lot of death threats. On the fourth year of my work in the community, several members of the congregation started telling me, Al, you need to leave. We heard you will be the next target by the military to be killed. You have become a threat to them. And I said to myself, I would rather die doing something than getting killed hiding under my bed. As the congregation begins its process of waking up, 
Al begins to see the need for more than just worship. After all, his congregation has grown up in a conflict zone, and for many, it's all they've ever known. I had a feeling that that church really needed a different kind of space where people could come not just to kind of worship God, but really to come and also make sense of what they have gone through and to make sense of their existence, basically. We would gather, I would gather just the young people in the church, just the young people, just for them to have a space by which they could just kind of let go. It was just a circle, basically, just to kind of reflect that sense of community where everyone would see each other. I would provide them with kind of a situation. What did you notice about your community? What has been happening here? And then they would say a lot of heavy militarization. Several of their friends killed. When they first told these stories, they were kind of detached. They did not see themselves as part and parcel of their narrative. Just like, oh, many houses were burned down. The military just at one point just attacked us and we were running away. Until I asked them questions like, where were you in this, when your village, when this village was attacked, where were you? Where was your family during that time? Because of what is happening in your community here, how did that affect you as well as a person? What about your dreams? What about your fears? That was just the beginning. And it lasted for more than a year, that kind of processing. And later did I realize how much we really needed that for them to become more responsive and more inspired once they're able to let go. They became more active participants in their own ministry of the church. It started to make sense on me. All the while they were thinking I was the one helping them, but in the long run, I started realizing that they were the ones actually helping me understand what was happening in my country. There was also another reason why I started asking if I could ex asking them if I could extend my work with them and that was when the church was able to see the connection between community action and spirituality as and faith as one they became actively involved in society they started advocating for environmental protection they started advocating for human rights against human rights violation for social justice Come election time, the entire church would march with all these banners and saying, elect the government who have vision for our environment. Politicians who are concerned and mindful about human rights. And this is the church. And for me, that was a form of empowerment. And to overhear them say, what we are doing is but an actual manifestation, an outward manifestation of our faith. To me, I could die anytime. <laughs> Seriously. Al stays one more year, a total of five, in Zutigao del Sur. His time takes a toll. He struggles with the incongruence of his work as a minister and the reality of war. Working for five years and that war zone became a very um, deep spiritual journey for me. I remember on several occasions, various Sundays, many members of the church that I work with would come not having eaten their breakfast. We had some members who were also 
killed by military atrocities, the dropping of bombs on villages. And so to me, it was, it also became very difficult to preach the gospel when your very own people haven't eaten their meals the day before Sunday comes. I started actually harboring so much anger at the Philippine military, particularly Philippine army. So much anger that I became desperate to do whatever I could. There were even occasions when I had to go up to the mountain without the knowledge of the church members and talk to some of the rebel leaders and ask them, how could I join your organization? I was tempted to use violence as a way, you know, the very thing that I was against almost became my outlet. After those five years, he's finally ready to leave and gets the opportunity to do just that. Al receives a scholarship to continue his education at the Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Indiana to get his master's in peace studies. As part of his classwork, he attends a course on forgiveness. It stirs something he wasn't expecting. I remember one afternoon, our professor was teaching us about forgiveness. That was a topic. And I was literally yelling at her, who are you to tell me to forgive my enemies? You haven't even been to my community. You haven't even been, and you haven't even experienced the kind of experience that I went through and that my people have gone through. And then here you are telling me, I kind of take it personally, telling me to forgive my enemies. Good for you, because by the end of the day, you always have the comfort of your house to go to. Being a victim weighs heavy on Al. How is he supposed to be a builder of peace when he can't forgive his enemies for what they did to him and his people? He realizes he's going to have to confront someone that he's been overlooking, himself. Because at that moment, I saw myself as a victim. I continued to reflect on what happened and what transpired and why I reacted that way. I tried to make sense of what has become of me during that time and then I kind of purged myself. So basically it was more of a personal undertaking for me. Part of the whole process in trauma healing is the question of forgiveness, which was also actually part of my own undertaking. The question of is forgiveness necessary in the healing process? Can I forgive the military, the Philippine army for what they did? to my people, because during that time, they were my number one enemy. And then there was another incident. There was actually one military organization in the Philippines that invited me to become a resource person. They were not the ones who were in that community that I work with in the war zone for five years. And the moment I received the invitation, I remember everything just again came back and I said, wow, they've invited me to facilitate the training for them and then I said to myself how can I facilitate trauma healing and conflict resolution with the people whom I consider to be my enemy yeah I said how can I facilitate trauma healing for those with those whom I consider to be my enemy in the first place I don't wish them healing or conflict resolution I wish them death and destruction because they were my enemies so I wasn't ready for that I had to go back to my own self and continue working on my own demons what I did was I had to rehumanize them first 
from, be, from being an enemy, a monster or evil. I had to rehumanize them in my heart, in my mind, if ever I wanted to work with them. And only then I was able to work with them. Now I basically hang out with them, work with them a lot. I can tell that story freely because I have already gone beyond that stage of victimization. Before, no, no. I was afraid, I was angry. I just couldn't tell that part of my story with the military. But now I can tell it very openly and freely. Sometimes we just kind of laugh at some aspects of those stories because, you know, like what I've said, I have gone beyond the stage of victimization. That's why this whole notion of loving your enemy is very difficult. You cannot love an enemy. You have to rehumanize your enemy first before you can start talking to them or hanging out with them because that's, you know, otherwise the enemy, that's what enemy stands for. There are people not deserving your time, your focus, your help, no. Al navigated an enormous amount to get to where he is today. Coming up, we explore the conventional roles of victims and perpetrators and how the seemingly obvious distinction between the two is, well, not so distinct after all. First though, we'll take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. This episode of Pushing the Perimeter is brought to you by MeetingCrimes.com. The average employee wastes nearly 30 hours a month in unproductive meetings. MeetingCrimes.com is a free resource that helps put an end to those unproductive meetings and enables your group to achieve rapid results. MeetingCrimes.com introduces you to four essential meeting types with useful instructions, tips, and cautions so that you and your organization can achieve powerful outcomes. Visit MeetingCrimes.com to learn more. Welcome back. We've been hearing from Al Fuertes, a professor at George Mason University and a practitioner in the field of conflict transformation. Al's experience growing up in the Philippines and then returning as a minister made a powerful impact on how he views conflict and especially the relationship between victims and perpetrators. As a result of his research, combined with his personal experience, Al developed a framework that he uses when he's out in the field. I was able to observe him walk through it that day I was in his classroom. While there weren't any warring parties involved, it was still clear that it's a powerful exercise. The framework is simple. It's six questions, and everyone gets a chance to answer. Many participants discover at the end of the exercise something quite unexpected. Al draws two wide circles on either end of a large piece of butcher paper, leaving about three feet of empty space in between each circle. Inside of the circle on the left, in big black letters, he writes, victim. In the circle on the right, perpetrator. He then turns to participants and asks his first question, the response to which he captures on the paper. How do victims see themselves as victims? Feeling worthless, hopeless, dirty, unworthy, taken advantage of, oppressed, silenced. I mean, can you imagine a person or an entire community, an ethnic community or a particular group feeling this way? Question number two explores the other side of the table. What about the perpetrators? How do perpetrators see themselves as such? Many responses describe the power, the entitlement, and the justification. But often, it's not that straightforward. 
There was one response that kind of complicates the whole thing. Well, perpetrators see themselves as victims. Wait, what? Perpetrators see themselves as victims too? In explaining this to me, Al points to the cyclical nature of conflict. In many cases, perpetrators can be enacting revenge for earlier transgressions either by the victim or by other parties, and the victim is just the closest thing around, hence leading to some of the justification and entitlement that perpetrators report experiencing. However, below that, as we start to see come out in this part of the framework, is often a sense of victimization. We see how participants' view of themselves, which at the outset was squarely in one camp or the other, begins to straddle the line between the two roles. When this realization dawns upon the class, the exercise turns somewhat somber as participants realize their own contributions to conflict despite their initial sense of the role they played. The third question comes from his own experience working in the Philippines. I also remember that time when I was in the war zone. I had lots of questions that didn't find any satisfactory answer, but nevertheless, they were questions. So what about questions? What questions victims usually ask? He warns participants, though. Many of these questions could be a trap. Don't try to answer any of these questions because your answer may lead to another question and then another question and then another question. And in many cases, what victims really need is for them to just kind of articulate their questions and express this out. Why me? What wrong did I do to deserve this? What made them do that? Why did they kill? Why, why, why God? Why did you let it happen? You know, I thought, God, you're always there ready to help us because that's what our pastors, our priests, our religious leaders would tell us every Sunday, every Friday, that at times when we need you the most, we just have to call on you and then you are there to help us. But where were you when I was raped? Where were you when my father was murdered? Where were you? You know, that kind of very difficult answer. And the question of God, do you really exist? So it becomes a spiritual journey as well. I can attest, it does get disconcerting in the most literal sense. Even though I was only sitting in a classroom, participating in a mock exercise, it felt very real. As the class, myself included, was calling out answers. I can only imagine what it's like when the stakes are even higher. To be so certain of your perspective and your grasp of what happened, yet to experience about halfway through the exercise, the line between victim and perpetrator beginning to disappear. What takes its place is a gray area of pain and suffering for everyone involved, with little distinction between the sides. Al gets to this point by hearing both sides equally, and as facilitator, he restrains judgment. His fourth question embodies this. I also felt equally important to also know, not necessarily agree, but just to know and listen to reasons perpetrators usually use or resort to to justify their action. Most difficult response to hear for the victims is, I was just following the order, and I thought that was the right thing to do at that time. How can you expect remorse from perpetrators who really believe that what they did was the right thing to do? You know, we're difficult. We're difficult. The final two questions explore how each group perceives the other. How do victims see the perpetrators? 
And how do perpetrators see the victims? It's these two questions that are often forgotten, Al says, and their omission can lead to a resurgence of conflict. That's why after the signing of peace agreement, for example, three months down the road, another conflict of the same nature erupts. And we wonder, how come? Our leaders just signed a peace agreement, and now here's another conflict of the same nature. It's because down there, in the grassroots level, people are still wanting to avenge, still feeling, you know, going through the victimization. After completing these six questions, Al steps back from the paper where he's written all of the responses. There are so many that it not only fills the two circles, it has overwhelmed the blank space between them. The only word to describe what he's created is chaos. He turns to the class and says, It's in this mess that people try to solve conflict. You can't do it until you get it all out. In Al's class, I had my notebook open in front of me. I only wrote one line down that entire time. It reads, There's no space for us to be together. What this exercise accomplishes is remarkable. The empathy generated, or in Al's words, the restoration of humanity, allows parties to view each other in a new light, in a way that opens the door to possibilities for transformation of the conflict. This experience of empathy at the end of the exercise surprised me in that it is clearly something that is so necessary when it becomes evident that everyone, in some senses, is both a victim and a perpetrator. I can't help but see the similarities between what Al is describing in these conflicts with our State of the Union today. The past few months have been tense, depending on who you ask. I question Al, what's his take on all of it? Partisan politics is healthy to the extent that it provides us with a platform by which we could also articulate our respective, our vision. But if partisan politics starts to overpower us to the point that it deprives us or it hinders us from reaching out to others. I don't think that's healthy. And I think that's what I'm seeing in this country nowadays. Ideally, partisan politics should end after election. <laughs> because by then we are there, you know, to work for the rest of the country regardless of where one stands in the spectrum of, you know, the political spectrum. But somehow in this country, it continues. And I think it, in fact, further crystallizes or solidifies, you know, the walls that kind of separate us from the other. The higher the wall that we build around us, the more we let our partisan political affiliation defines who we are. I think the more we also fail to see those who are outside our wall, then we become myopic. And so the question is, what happens with the rest of the population? I wonder if there's a, <laughs> a solution, you know, an immediate solution to this other than, man. You know what, it's really very difficult to, to bring into the field of politics, my field as well, especially trauma healing. Many leaders, government leaders don't see its relevance. Many of them see this as a soft kind of approach. It's only for the those who are, it's a touchy-feely kind of stuff.
if if only um, government leaders, politicians, and all of us that matter, if only we are able to see ourselves as human beings in relation to what is happening, I think that would have a big impact. It's hard to say what will make the difference in our political situation. My hope is that one day, someone will strike the match that lights the fire of transformation. True to form, I ask Al what he thinks the leaders of tomorrow need to know. From my perspective, the leaders of tomorrow need to know how, just how important the welfare of the entire population is. I think they also need to inculcate in themselves the element of mindfulness. I think it's more about having that deeper sense of awareness, self-awareness. The leaders of tomorrow, I think, need to know that it's okay to be <laughs> vulnerable. <laughs> and they must know how to listen, that's, that's basically. And the leader who, leaders who see themselves as stewards of the trust that people have given them and not look at their leadership as a form of entitlement, but rather as an opportunity. Very simple, but I think crucial. Thank you, Al, for joining us on the show. Your contribution and stand for others is nothing short of remarkable. Many thanks to the team here at The Clearing. You make all of this possible, especially Tara and Ayrton. As cliche as it sounds, thanks to my mother. She helped out with some of the storytelling elements on this one. If you'd like to hear other episodes of Pushing the Perimeter, check out our website at www.theclearing.com. We're under the Ideas and Insights tab. Until next time, I'm Sean Fallen. Now go do something extraordinary.